Bhagavan and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek and in this video I want to talk about some differences between the movie and Peter Jackson's movies in particular I should say and the books particularly when it comes to the Council of Elrond because it has a lot of interesting implications for other parts of the story. So I'm going to be doing a lot of videos comparing different elements of the books with the Peter Jackson movies since those are the most popular and well-known at this point and this is just going to be the first of many. So let's get started and talk about how the Peter Jackson movies change the Council of Elrond in some interesting ways that affect the story. So the interesting thing about the Council of Elrond in the way that Peter Jackson changes it up is actually you have to know more about the story beyond the Fellowship of the Ring to really understand it. So there's not entirely the case because you kind of get a hint of this in, in the actual Fellowship of the Ring movie where Elrond says at the beginning of the council that you have been summoned here from distant lands. That's a hint of what's going on, but the other part of it is if you've seen the extended edition version of the Lord of the Rings movies, then you know that in the second movie, The Two Towers, you actually have a scene where Denethor comes and tells Boromir that Elrond has called a meeting and he's going to send Boromir to it. And it's kind of not really how it goes. In the actual story, what happens is all these people just happen to show up in Rivendell at the same time for related but not obviously connected reasons. So, and this will probably have to be another one where I do a separate video just on Boromir and how his character is different because the two are very closely connected, but Boromir shows up as a result of a dream that he had um, where he was it, it seemingly a prophetic dream and not really not able to really understand what it's talking about. It uses terms like a silver's bane and different things like that, but they don't really know what that means. And so what Denethor ends up suggesting is you know, go to Rivendell or in Ladris, which was also a name given in the dream, to find out, you know, what what this dream is about, because everybody who knows anything in Middle Earth knows that Elrond is the greatest lore master in Middle Earth, being one of the oldest elves and one who keeps up with the history and whatnot. So that's how Boromir ends up going. And it's not even his dream originally, it's originally Faramir's but Boromir takes it on himself to go, and there's a whole lot of other stuff related to that. So Boromir shows up not because he's been called or because anybody from Gondor has been called, but because he he and his brother had this dream, and then Denethor said, well, there's one way to find out what that means. Go to Imladris or Rivendell. So similarly with Legolas, Legolas shows up because in the book, the woodland elves had been uh, charged with keeping Gollum who had been captured by Aragorn earlier before the story really begins, or, well, not before the story begins, but before Frodo's quest begins, I should say. And they were keeping him, and he ends up getting loose because of a very well-planned raid into the Woodland Realm. And so Legolas is coming to tell of that. And it's they're not related. There's you know no connection that brings them together at the same time. It just kind of happens. Similarly with the dwarves, Gimli and his father Glowin, who astute readers will know, uh, or astute viewers will know, 
was one of the dwarves that Bilbo traveled with in The Hobbit. Uh, they show up because they've been menaced by what, in retrospect, from our perspective, appears to be a Black Rider or Nazgul, basically threatening them slash promising them rewards in trying to get them to join Sauron's side of, of the war, basically. So they come to Elrond seeking advice. So that's one element of the Council of Elrond that's very different. You get all these different people coming together at the same time without any planning involved. And they all just kind of happen to show up at the right time. And obviously that's uh, seemingly providential, and Elrond even kind of puts it down to providence. He's like, don't think that this is chance, that we are all here so that we here can decide the fate of Middle-earth in terms of what our plan is to counter this threat. So he's basically taking it as a sign that we're the ones that have to decide this right here, right now. And that sets a different tone for the entire thing because it's not like they all plan this idea of let's find the best and brightest of all the different worlds and come up with a master plan. It's everybody just happens to show up and it's like, okay, all these people need to be involved for some reason. So that's, you know, one major difference in the Council of Elrond is the entire setup is different than the way it starts out in the movies. But there's also several other interesting differences I'll get to in a minute. So as I mentioned, Boromir doesn't show up because he knows what's going on or because a meeting's been called. And there's no indication either that he knows what the ring is because he doesn't know what Isildur's bane is. There's no, no hint that the, anybody in Gondor has that the ring survived or what. They don't really know much of anything about the lore uh, of the ring. And when Boromir arrives, he just kind of shows up seeking an answer to what appears to be a riddle. So he he shows up not knowing what the ring is. Most of the people don't know what the ring is. Some of them kind of have an idea of what the ring is because they've been around long enough. But by and large, you know, they aren't showing up to find out what the, you know, what the ring is or what to do with it. They're showing up for their own problems. And so as a result, a lot of the council is taking up with describing the history of the ring and even the Hobbit itself because Bilbo is actually told to tell his story and because he takes a lot of self-pride in it, he doesn't tell a short version of it. He tells a long version of it, despite claiming to uh, <laughs> not want to do that. But Gandalf also gives a long history of it that uh, tells you a lot about what probably happened. And of course, some of it's guesswork. Gandalf admits that. But it's interesting because you actually get a much better view of the history of how the ring came to be where it was. How in the world did it come to be found by Smeagol, now known as Gollum, in a river and then end up under the mountain where Bilbo end up, ended up finding it. So Gandalf actually explains a lot of that. Uh, some of it is kind of explained in an earlier chapter where he's telling Frodo and then it kind of gets recapped and with some elements added in. They tell about how uh, Gandalf and Aragorn ended up capturing Gollum and some of the other history that leads up to it. So there's a lot of that going on in the Council of Elrond. They're also telling the stories of the different people who have shown up for their own different reasons. So like I mentioned, the, the dwarves are there because they're worried about this this menacing figure who keeps showing up at their doorstep wanting them to do something for them. Specifically what, what that voice 
the Black Rider Nazgul wants them to do is to obtain the ring from Bilbo. He basically says, you know, it's as a token of your your goodwill or whatever, we want you to get this ring that was stolen from, you know, our Lord, which I don't think they ever name as Sauron, but actually I think he does actually, which is interesting because he basically comes around and says, I want you to join evil. But, uh, you know, they're, they of course know who he's talking about. He's talking about Bilbo, but they're, they're not familiar with the actual ring element of the whole story because Bilbo kept that a secret for the entirety of The Hobbit. Gandalf's really about the only one who knows anything about that, and he had to get it out of Bilbo the hard way. He didn't, you know, just confide in Gandalf. Gandalf basically had to pressure him. So you get a lot of their story. You get a lot of the the Woodland Realm story. Legolas explains how Gollum got free from, you know, their, their prison and whatnot. So, I mean, you get a lot of backstory buildup in the Council of Elrond because they have to explain why they're there and it all then kind of ties together into this is why we're all here. It's all related to the same thing. It's this one ring and that's when it kind of starts to get a little bit more similar to the way it happens in the book but even then there's some differences and I'll get into that next. Once everybody's kind of explained why they're at the Council of Elrond and why well, what, where the ring came from and all that, Boromir kind of pipes up and says, you know, I don't really understand all this. How do we even know this is the ring that Sauron lost and all this stuff? So it, it, Boromir interrupts it in, in a completely different way, and, and it doesn't really change the tempo of the, of the uh, meeting nearly as much. And basically Gandalf explains, well, you'd think just based on what, Glowin and Gimli just told us about how badly he wants this ring and some of the other things that you've heard about how dangerous it was for Frodo to get here that it would be kind of obvious. But then he explains, I also tested it, you know, by throwing it in the fire, blah, blah, blah. So you get, you know, all that information again. And then, unlike in the movie where Boromir, you know, kind of goes up to try to grab the ring at some point because he's just immediately tempted, which doesn't really happen. Uh, in the book, the council proceeds much more calmly. They end up, you know, actually having a debate as to what they need to do about the ring once they all kind of agree that's what it is. Uh, it also comes out, as it does in the movie, that Aragorn is Isildur's heir and whatnot. Boromir is not nearly as dismissive in the book as he is in the movie. He's not gung-ho about it either for obvious reasons because he's you know he's just seeing Aragorn for the first time he doesn't know who he is he's just you know he's being told this but he's you know kind of eh, I'm not so sure about you but he's not you know actively hostile like the like he is in the movie so Boromir his character difference makes a huge difference in terms of the actual process of the of the entire council but once they've kind of start debating it, it's not, that's kind of the last major difference between the movie version and the book version. In the movie, of course, Elrond just basically says you have only one choice. The ring must be destroyed. There's no real discussion about it, no nothing. Whereas in the, in the, in the book itself, the, there actually is something of a debate about it. They actually discuss multiple different options. They talk about possibilities of not only attempting to destroy it, which they determine 
can't really be done by them. Uh, they discussed trying to hide it permanently somewhere, and they realized, well, that's not really going to work because sooner or later Sauron is just going to overrun all of Middle-earth and re reclaim it for his own one way or another if you just try to hide it. They even bring up the possibility of giving it to Tom Bombadil to hide since Tom Bombadil seems to have uh, some degree of power of his own. Maybe he could withstand and Gandalf basically says, well, there's two problems with that. Tom Bombadil has some power in his own realm, it's true, but he's not powerful enough to withstand Sauron if all other allies have been wiped out. He's not that kind of character. Tom Bombadil, if you don't know anything about Tom Bombadil, you really have to read the book. I've done another video where I kind of talked about some loose ends, uh, that, and one of those is Tom Bombadil, so you might want to check that out. But basically that option gets taken off the table. And the other reason Gandalf takes it off the table is Tom Bombadil cares so little about things like this, he would probably just throw the ring by the highway and forget about it because he just really doesn't. It's, it's, it's not in his nature to care that much about that sort of thing. So that option is gone. They also consider throwing it into the ocean or something like that, which would, of course, be kind of... In the book, this is another thing that you don't really get in the movie, in the book you find out that Saruman at one point in one of the White Council meetings with Elrond, Galadriel, and Gandalf had basically said the ring probably has, you know rolled down the river into the sea and will remain there forever. And so they basically say, you know, well, let's make his his prediction come true and just throw it in the ocean. That, of course, doesn't really work either because then Sauron has no real end to his threat. He can just continue to build power until he finally conquers Middle-earth, even without the ring. So, I mean, they're faced with, at last, a decision, well, could we send it to the west, into Valinor? No, they wouldn't accept that. So they really come to the end of we have to destroy the ring out of complete necessity, which is really the reason in the movie as well. But in the movie, he just, you know, Elrond just kind of skips to the point and doesn't really discuss. Nobody discusses any other options. Nobody tries to find any other way because nobody does want to try to get to Mordor, throw the ring into the Mountain of Fire. I mean, that's not a pleasant prospect. It's dangerous. It's very unlikely to to succeed, and of course Boromir makes that clear in the movie, one does not simply walk into Mordor, one of the greatest and most overused memes of all time, uh, but, you know, there is some truth to that, but it, it gets developed a lot more in the book because there's a lot more time to develop it. In fact, the Council of Elrond in the Fellowship of the Raiden is one of the longest chapters in the entire trilogy. There's a lot of material. It's really interesting reading just that one chapter because you learn a lot of things. You find out all kinds of interesting stuff about Middle-earth history, where all these different people come from, and, and get a lot of background on different characters. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the chapter, and it gets really, really, really cut down in, into a really short... It's not really a short scene even in the movie because it's it's still relatively long for the movie, but it's it's a lot shorter than it would have been had they done it the way that it was done in the book. So that's kind of the main differences between the book version and the movie version of the Council of Elrond. It ends up being, of course, that uh, the one the one last thing that kind of comes as a result of the decision to destroy the ring is Elrond decides 
you know, we need to have a, a small group because small group is going to be able to maintain secrecy more than an, a large army or something like that. Take the ring. Frodo does volunteer more or less as he does in the movie, not as a result of everybody bickering as much, but just because they come to a point where everybody is thinking about, well, who's going to do this? And then Frodo just feels kind of compelled to, to volunteer. The rest of the of the group are picked a little bit differently. They don't all just kind of volunteer in a gung-ho, yay, let's do it type thing in the way that they do in the, mo the movie. Elrond actually says what we need to do is have a group of nine walkers to match the nine black riders. It's kind of a poetic type of thing because they know that those are going to be kind of their main danger for a lot of the trip is the nine Nazgul who are out searching for the ring. And so he says there need to be nine. We need to have representatives from all the peoples. Frodo, of course, volunteers to take the ring. Sam is allowed to go because there's no way they could prevent him from going, and they know that. Uh, he pops up much as he did in the, uh, you know, he, he shows up unexpectedly and un, uh, uninvited at the end of the council, and Elrond basically agrees to let him go because of the loyalty he has to, to Frodo. He also has Legolas and Gimli picked out, and Aragorn is and Boromir are going more or less because they're headed toward Minas Tirith anyway, which will take them most of the way. Um, there's no expectation that the entire Fellowship will ever make it all the way to uh, to Mordor. There is some expectation that Boromir will simply break off and go to Minas Tirith at some point, and that's always a possibility for Aragorn. Once those are picked, Gandalf says that he may or may not go, and then ultimately, of course, he does. Merry and Pippin end up, you know, they're not at the council the way they are in the movie, so they end up kind of being told about all this later and complain a lot that, you know, if we're not going to be allowed to go, then we're just, we're going to come along anyway. Uh, and Elrond at first is hesitant about that. He doesn't really want to send them because he knows it's going to be dangerous. And Pippin and Merry, especially Pippin, are actually quite young. Pippin is not even of age for a hobbit. He's 29, which the typical coming of age for a hobbit is 33. So, I mean, he's kind of the equivalent of a late teenager. And he's really worried about the effect that this adventure is going to have on them. But Gandalf kind of talks him into it and said, look, I mean, this quest is basically hopeless anyway. There's no real reason to think that adding two more really strong or or wise people to this group is going to make it much more likely to succeed. It's better to just count on their great friendship because that's really what's going to pull everybody through in the end anyway. And of course, it turns out that it ended up being a good thing that both Mary and Pippin came along because of the different things that happened in the story later. But anyway, that's the way it all kind of goes in the in the book, which is both more rich in, in its detail and a lot more interesting than the way it happens in the movie. In the movie, the Council of Elrond is kind of like a necessary step just to get the ball rolling. In the book, it's a lot more, you get a lot more of the background at that point because you don't have what, you know, in the movie you have the, the kind of the intro scene where you get a lot of the history behind how Sauron was destroyed and all that stuff. A lot of that comes in the Council in the book, and so you have to go through that chapter, really get an idea 
of all the importance because you get some of that when Gandalf talks to Frodo in the Shire, but not enough of it to really get everything. And then, you know, the, the Council of Elrond chapter is just really one of the best, most interesting chapters. And so I think it deserved its own video. So that's kind of my wrap up as to how the two different, uh, how the book and the movie handled that differently. So hope you enjoyed it. So if you thought that was interesting, or if you would like to learn more about uh, different things about Tolkien, and not just about Lord of the Rings, but pretty much anything Tolkien wrote, uh, then stick around, subscribe to the channel. You can also follow me at Twitter, at JRRTLore. Until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadie.